Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to Cambridge Science Festival. Uh, could you please give a very warm welcome for your speaker this evening from the Department of Plant Sciences. Uh, we're going to listen to Hamish Symington. Thank you. I found that that's the generally tends to be the easiest way to guarantee myself a round of applause. <laughs> so, um, so thank you very much indeed. It's, uh, it's nice to see so many of you here. Uh, we were hoping for considerably more. You're the, uh, either the brave or the foolhardy ones, we'll see, um, in, in a couple of weeks' time. But thank you very much indeed, <laughs> thank you very much indeed for turning out to, uh, to hear me tonight. Um, so just before I start, I want to give you a little, uh, a little bit of who, who is this person who is standing in front of you talking about bees for the evening. I'm a PhD student uh, in the Department of Plant Sciences in Beverly Glover's lab. She runs the Botanic Garden. So most of the time I am sat in a, on a lab bench with plates of yeast and plates, and I should be wearing a lab coat, but the person who does health and safety isn't here tonight, so that's fine. Um, but when I'm not doing that, I'm, I have uh, plots on the research bed in the botanic garden, and I get, to, um, I get to grow my flowers there and have a look at what's going on with, uh, with, uh, with strawberry flowers, which I'm growing there. So I, I, I get to work in the botanic garden for most of the summer, which is absolutely fabulous. And sometimes you might see us out at the Festival of Plants. We have our uh, little mobile bee display where we train some bees and uh, people can have a bit of a look at what's going on there. Um, you may have noticed I'm not the typical age for doing a PhD. Um, I, I took 15 years out between my undergrad degree and my, uh, and my PhD. I uh, trained as a software developer and graphic designer and then came back. You are never too old to do a PhD. Um, it is... Hard work, that's fine, but um, uh, yeah, you're never too old to, to start one. Um, so I want to have a bit of a look first at why plants actually make flowers. Why do they bother with this at all? And it, you, may have, you may think it's to look pretty or things like that, and that's certainly what we bred stuff, uh, bred them for, is to look really nice and attractive when you give them to your mother on Mother's Day. Sunday. Um, yeah, don't forget that one. That's good. My mother's over there, so I, yeah. Um, but actually, the, the flowers are there to present a plant's sexual organs in a way which maximizes pollination. So you can think of that when you're giving your mother your bouquet of flowers. You're presenting her with a display of sexual organs. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay, um, so we have on the left here a nice little woodland flower, which I took a picture of somewhere. Um, I think it was in Germany. And that's presenting its sexual organs nicely there. These ones here, these are wind-pollinated. This is willow. Willow is slightly different because it has male and female trees. They're completely separate. This little flower has male and female organs all together. This here is the female uh, flower of the willow, and on a different tree, this is the male. It's got pollen all over it. And uh, willow is wind-pollinated, so that is presenting it uh, to the wind so that the, uh, the pollen can all disperse by the wind and hopefully some of it will land on the female parts of the flower here. Whereas this one is going to be insect pollinated and it's pre presenti uh, prevent presenting everything together. But why bother? Why bother with pollen and eggs and pollinators and all of that sort of stuff at all? Why not just reproduce asexually? And there are some plants which can. Now, sometimes when I'm giving this talk, I ask people to tell me what the flowers are, or the plants are. I'm not going to do that in this case, because hopefully it's relatively obvious that this is a potato. Um, but this is a plant which can reproduce sexually. You put your potato in the ground, it grows into a potato plant if something doesn't eat it, and then it makes more potatoes. And then you can dig those potatoes up and keep them till next year, put them back in the ground, and grow more potato grow several potato plants out of that one. You can either put them in the ground or forget to dig them up from last year, and then your potato plants grow up in the middle of your run of beans, which is what I have. So that's reproducing asexually. Um, there is no pollen and ovule and anything like that going on here. It's simply, um, all, it's simply one plant is making more potatoes from which new plants can grow. And that means that all the potatoes are genetically identical. This can be a bit of a problem if one of the potatoes is, for example, susceptible to disease. And this is what happened with the Irish potato famine in the 1850s. There was a variety of potato called the Irish lumper. And this didn't really have much to recommend it. It was a wet, nasty, knobbly old potato, is how it was described. Um, its chief benefit was it grew in Ireland, um, because not very many potatoes grow in Ireland. 
So everybody grew that, but it was really susceptible to Phytophthora, the disease which caused potato blight and um, uh, such a problem with the, with the potato famine. This one is a banana, and bananas have the same thing. Bananas don't have seeds. We bred them out, so we can't cross bananas to produce new varieties of banana. And instead, what we do is we have a banana plant which grows little suckers, and you can cut them off with their little roots, put them in the ground, and they will grow into a new banana plant. But again, it's a clone. It's genetically identical uh, with, the, um, with the parent plant. So if there is any kind of disease um, which affects the parent plant, then all of the population will be susceptible. And again, that's what happened in the 1950s. There was a variety called Gromichel, uh, and that was enormously popular, but it was all but wiped out by Panama disease. There was even a song written about it called Yes, We Have No Bananas, which I'm not going to play for you now. Um, and in response, you would hope that what was done was to uh, find lots of new disease-resistant varieties which we can grow and grow several different ones. No, what we actually did was just grow lots of one variety, all clonally propagated again, called Cavendish. So now Cavendish uh, is responsible for about 47% of the bananas grown worldwide. And Panama disease has mutated and it's now spreading through Cavendish bananas. So very soon, probably, um, either banana, well, banana prices will go up and the availability of bananas will go down. And the bad news is we don't really have any varieties to replace them. Breeding bananas is incredibly difficult. People will buy genetically modified bananas, so we can't insert disease-resistant genes into them. Um, so I would, I would eat quite a lot of bananas relatively soon if you like bananas and wish to tell your children about the fact that they existed once. So, yeah, plants can reproduce asexually. But asexual reproduction makes it harder to accumulate beneficial traits, so things which are good for the plant. And I want to show this um, with, a, with a little diagram here. We've got two populations of, of um, uh, plants. I've coloured them as flowers, but just think of them as plants. The reason I've coloured them will become apparent in a moment. And as we go on, they generate some progeny. But let's say there's a mutation here which causes this one to be resistant to drought. So that one can grow when there's not much water. I've coloured it orange so you can see it because a drought-resistant plant looks rather like any other plant. <laughs> but just think of orange as drought-resistant. And on this side, let's say we had a mutation which makes it resistant to disease. Remember, these are asexual um, plants. There's no crossing between them, no transfer of pollen and eggs and anything like that. Next generation, everything seems to be still fine. We're not, there's no drought, there's no disease. Might have a couple more um, drought-resistant ones over here. Might have a couple more disease-resistant ones over here. But again, there's, there's no crossing. They're just parent produces several children. But let's say we now have a disease. Sorry. Let's say we now have a drought. That was it. These ones are drought-resistant. That's it. We now have a drought. Over here, we have all of the drought-resistant the, the drought ones have survived to be able to produce new plants. On the right-hand side, there are no drought-resistant um, uh, genes within the population, so they all die. Let's now say we have a disease. There's no disease-resistant plants over here, so they all die too, and the entire population of plants is gone. If you could cross genes from here into here, or vice versa, then the problem would be solved. And that's what sex is all about. Sexual reproduction allows genetic transfer. So if we start out the same way, we've got our two populations of plants. There's a mutation in one, which makes it resistant to drought. There's a mutation in another one, which makes it resistant to disease. But then you get this crossing. Pollen from one over this side goes over to here. Pollen from over here goes over to here. And we start getting plants which have both disease resistance and drought resistance. As we go on a bit further, let's say we now have um, let's say we now have our disease, sorry, our drought. Always get that wrong. Uh, let's say we now have our drought. All of the ones with drought-resistant traits, which is the orange half, survive in both populations. And now, if we have our disease, all of the ones with red halves also survive because they can survive both drought and disease. So sexual reproduction allows genetic transfer. So. I'm guessing that most of you don't spend much of your day staring down a microscope at flowers, which is what I do. So I want a little bit of GCSE revision here as to what the structure of a flower actually is. 
This is a standard bisexual flower, so it's got the male and the female organs, just like that purple flower which I showed you before. Uh, so we've got petals around the outside, the nice big showy bits, uh, and then we've got anth uh, uh, stamens. We've got the filament, which is the supporting bit, and then the anther on the top. And that's like a bag full of pollen, which bursts to release the pollen grains. The female part is the carpal, which is the bit in the middle, and that's separated into stigma at the top, the style, which is the supporting bit, and then the ovary down the bottom, and right in the middle that contains the ovule, and inside that is the egg. And pollen, sorry, pollination is the process of getting pollen from your anther to your stigma. Fertilization is the process of getting the sperm, which is contained in the pollen, all the way down to the egg. Okay, let's have a bit of a look at pollen. Pollen comes in all shapes and sizes. And this is mallow pollen. Um, I took this when I was out in the field. I had a little tiny hand lens, just a 10 times um, magnifying hand lens. And you can see the individual pollen grains on a mallow flower. They are enormous. And under the microscope, they look like this. Um, sort of rather like the old mines you used to get back in, um, uh, back in the sea in, in the First World War. Uh, it's, it's big and spiky, and it's got lots of little holes in it. Mallow pollen is one of the largest uh, pollens that exist in the plant kingdom. The smallest is forget-me-not. It's absolutely tiny compared to it. It's probably about the same size as one of those little spikes, if, if not smaller. And the architecture of the pollen depends on the pollinator. So some wind-pollinated uh, plants have pollen with sails on it, and it'll, it can fly off in the wind and catch the wind very nicely. Pollen's also really useful for the fossil record. You, pollen fossilizes really, uh, really very well. Um, it's... it's it's remarkably indestructible. And so you can have a look back at the fossil record and see the fossils of pollen grains there and see which plants were around. And that's how we know a bit about, how, um, about the time scale of which plants evolved when. Out on the outside of the pollen is, is a protein coat, and it's those proteins which cause hay fever. So you become allergic to the pollens which are contained within it, much like you have an immune response to pretty much anything else. And pollen is dehydrated to make transport easier, particularly with wind pollinated, where you want it to be as light as possible to float around. Here's a different one. Here is some strawberry pollen. This is a picture I took on the um, scan electron microscope. So these are much, much smaller, and they look, um, well, from one, from one angle, they look like those rolls you get in cheap restaurants. They, um, they've, actually, they've actually got three little slits in them, and from there is where a pollen tube comes out. I'll tell you about that in a moment. So what happens after pollination? We've got the pollen to the, uh, to the stigma, which is that bit at the top of the flower. But it's got to go all the way down through the style, down to the ovule. And this one's a tulip, by the way. Another uh, characteristic of different flowers is they have different colour pollens. So tulip pollen is black, uh, which always looks absolutely fabulous against uh, a really nice, uh, nice yellow stigma there. So the pollen is now here. Oh, sorry. The pollen is... Oh, Wrong one. There we go. Good. The pollen is now here. But it contains the sperm, which needs to get there. And that's quite a long way, and it's made up of plant tissue. So how on earth do we get to there? What happens is we make a pollen tube. So this is lily pollen. It's got this wonderful tripe-like coating on the outside. And one of these... Um, uh, you get one of these things forming, which is the pollen tube. The pollen lands on the stigma, it rehydrates, germinates, and starts forming this tube. Now, the, um, the sperm, which is contained within the pollen, move down this tube. Unlike our sperm, they don't swim. Um, they, don't have, um, they don't have tails. The process of how they get down that tube is not really known at all. They just do. So at some point, someone is going to do some research on how that sperm moves. But at the moment, all we know is it just goes down the tube. And every so often, it's blocked off with little bits of cell wall uh, so it can't go backwards. So this tube grows all the way through the style, that, the, the, the supporting bit, the, the bit which supports the stigma, pushing its way through between the cells of it. And it gets nutrition from the cells which are in it, um, and also there's guiding signals. And eventually it reaches the ovule at the bottom and bursts. 
So here's just a little illustration of those pollen tubes going through. This is a, um, a style which I have rotated through 90 degrees. So that's the top, that's the bottom. And this is about five millimetres long. It's in every botanist's favourite plant, Arabidopsis thaliana. Everybody knows, oh, sorry, um, all, all plant, well, lots of plant scientists do all sorts of work on it. And it's a, it, it's a plant which is really useful for characterising stuff. It's small and scrubby and weedy and horrible. And you can do all sorts of genetic information with it. We know everything about its genes. Uh, we know how to how to grow it really quickly. It takes six weeks from seed to seed, uh, seed to grow to producing new seed. So this is the, the, the workhorse of plant sciences. So this one here, we have um, genetically engineered the pollen to make it glow under ultraviolet light. So we can see uh, where that pollen is. So viewing the whole stigma, which is which is all of this, sorry, the whole stigma in style, which is all of this, we can see the pollen is at the top and you've got these tubes growing down. And that's a pollen tube growing through the cells of the style. They can grow really, really quickly. In maize, they can grow a centimetre an hour. So those pollen tubes are really fast. Uh, in maize, they do have to go about 20 centimetres, uh, which is obviously quite a long way, all with the, with the sperms um, at the end. So I want a brief note about, about compatibility, because you may have heard about this in your gardens. You have plants which are compatible with each other. Some plants are self-incompatible, things like apple and clementine and almond. And that means that pollen from one flower, or sometimes one plant, cannot fertilise the female parts of that same plant. It, it can fertilise something of a different plant, but it can't fertilise it on the same Whereas some plants are self-compatible, like firestorm runner beans, uh, which are fabulous, uh, snapdragon or tomato. And self-incompatibility prevents inbreeding. When you have inbreeding within plants, just like within animals, you can accumulate traits which are not, not necessarily terribly good. Uh, whereas when you're um, out crossing, when you're going to um, uh, when, you're, when you're crossing with other individuals, then you're uh, using resources from all over the gene pool and preventing this inbreeding. Many plants selected for crops are self-pollinating because if you think about it, that we want the pollination to happen because then it will grow into uh, fruit and seeds. Um, but sometimes we, that we can't do that. There are certain plants which, like orange, for example, which we just haven't, we haven't got self-compatible oranges yet. And the way that self-compatibility works is a bit like a two-component bomb. And if the two components match, then the bomb is diffused. So in orange, you have one component in the female part and one component in the male part. When they both come from the same flower, they match, and the, the, bomb, is, uh, the bomb essentially goes off, and the pollen tube cannot develop any further. The pollen tube um, development is stopped. Um, just after it germinates. Whereas if the two components don't match, so for example, um, well, well, continuing that, one component comes from a different plant, one component comes from so this one, another one. When they come together, the two components don't match, that bomb can't go off and the pollen tube can carry on developing. It's a slightly simplistic um, approach to it, but that, that is roughly how it works. So, we've looked at the mechanics of pollination, how, what happens when we got there. But obviously you've got this massive problem. How do you get the pollen from the anther to the stigma in the first place? And most often you think of insects because that's what you think. I'm standing here. You were ostensibly going to be talked to about bees this evening. I'll get to the bees later. Um, but yeah, most often you think of insects. But wind is a really important, enormous pollinator for so many of the crops that we grow. Wheat, barley, maize, sorghum all sorts of things like that, um, they require wind. And wind pollination requires lots and lots of pollen because it's not directed. You're just releasing pollen and hoping it goes somewhere. So you need to produce vast amounts. A single anther of sorrel, which is a weedy little plant about that high, um, a single anther, so one on the end of the um, stamen, uh, contains 30,000 pollen grains. Whereas a single anther from a clover flower contains about 220. Clover is pollinated by bees. Um, a single cone from a spruce tree, the, the pine trees that we have, um, of the spruces that we have down the main walk in the botanic garden, a single cone from those can make six million pollen grains. 
So there's enormous amounts of um, pollen being produced by wind-pollinated um, uh, by wind-pollinated plants. And just to illustrate that, I've got this video from America. Excuse the American commentary on it. Uh, this is uh, somebody who. Oh, come on, you can play. There we go. Her husband Eric was at work yesterday when he tapped a tree with a digger loader. And you see what happens once the machine taps the tree, it is a pollen storm. The Let's just watch that again. Cedar Lane in Millville, Cumberland County. And all that stuff in my car right now. That's just amazing, the sheer volume. And that's one tree. <laughs> so that's why you get hay fever. It's because there is there is that much just floating around. And you can see it sometimes on um, fields of grasses. You can see clouds of pollen. On, um, it looks absolutely fabulous, but then I don't get hay fever, so ha <laughs> um, However, using a targeted mode of delivery is much more efficient because pollen is expensive to make. It, it's, it contains lots of proteins. Excuse me. It's, it, it requires a lot of energy to make. So if we can use a targeted method of delivery, it's more efficient. It gets your pollen from A to B, and usually um, it gets it to the right. I was going to say to the right B. That's, that's slightly confusing. It gets your pollen from A to C, and it gets it to the right C. Okay, that's good. Um, so there are loads of different animal pollinators. It's not just bees. Everybody, whenever you say, I work with pollinators, oh, it's bees. It will, yes, I work with bees, but there are many animals which pollinate. And the first one is insects. So whenever we're talking about insect pollinators, we're talking not just about bees uh, and not just about honeybees, but we're talking about um, bumblebees, solitary bees, um, wasps, flies, hoverflies, beetles, huge insect kingdom. There's only seven species of honeybees in the entire world. Um, there's about, uh, I think, 280 species of bumblebee. And then there's all of the flies and all of the beetles and everything like that. So... Everyone gets fixated on the bees because they're cute and lovely, but it's not just bees, it's lots of insects as well. Anyway, um, other insect pollinators, we have bats. Uh, bats pollinate various different varieties of cactus, and those cactuses produce enormous amounts of nectar because a bat is a lot bigger than a bee. I learned something in my PhD. Um, what else have we got? Uh, birds, there's lots of stuff pollinated by hummingbirds, and they tend to be uh, tubular flowers. Birds can see red really well, so um, the, the, they can, um, lots of the bird-pollinated flowers are red, and they tend to be tubular so the hummingbird can put their beak down them. Um, what else? Lemurs. Fun fact, the lemur is the world's largest pollinator, if you don't, uh, if you don't include humans. They pollinate the traveler's palm. The honey possum. I was just going through a list of uh, obscure pollinators on here, so uh, I quite like gerbils pollinating African lily, and they have a sort of jellyish nectar which these gerbils can eat. Uh, lizards, I found one lizard pollinated tree, uh, which I was very pleased with, and possibly my favourite, there's a species of ginger uh, which is pollinated by slugs and snails. Now, when things are pollinated by um, honeybees, it's called melitophily, from melito melitos is um, honeybee in, in Greek. Um, Things which are pollinated by slugs, that's called malacophilus. And I was looking, I, I love words, so I was looking up the, the, de, uh, the, um, the derivation of this. And it comes from malakos, the Greek malakos meaning soft. So the, the actual derivation of the word is pollination by soft things, which is <laughs> disgusting. Anyway, so I'm going to focus for the rest of this talk, you will probably be quite pleased, on bees. Now bees can't really see very well. Uh, they've got vision about 100 times worse than us. And we've got this fantastic lens which can focus far away and close up until you get old, in which case it can only focus far away. Um, but bees don't have that. They can't, they can't shift their lenses, so they just have one fixed focal length which they're, um, uh, which they're looking at. And they can't really reliably detect objects more than about the size of their, uh, the size of their thumb, the size of your thumb, if you hold it to, hold it about arm's length. So any nectar guides on flowers, they're there for close-up work. So what we're looking at here is um, some uh, some flowers under our vision at the top. I'm not entirely sure what they are, but that doesn't really matter. Under bee vision, 
um, just looking at the colours which bees are able to see, they look slightly different. Um, I'll talk a little bit more in a moment about um, the, the colour receptors they have. But from about two centimetres away, you're already getting to this fuzz. From a little bit further, about five centimetres away, it's, it, it's almost indistinct. And when you get up to about 10 or 15 centimetres away, it's just a sort of vague lightning somewhere over there. So bees can't really see very well at all. Um, the colour receptors that bees have, uh, they have three colour receptors like us. We have red, green and blue. Um, they lack a red and instead they have a UV receptor. They can see a bit of red. Lots of people say that bumblebee, the bees can't see red. It's not quite true. They can see a bit of it because the green receptor sort of pushes off, um, pushes off into the red there. Butterflies can see red. They have four types of receptors, and there's lots of butterfly-pollinated plants which are red. Um, dragonflies, they're fabulous. They have 32 colour receptors. Um, dragonflies are, have amazing vision. Um, once they have decided to catch something, they are twice as efficient as a great white shark would be if once the great white shark had decided to catch a fish. And they're about four times as efficient as lions at catching their targets. So dragonflies are seriously impressive predators. So bees can't see very well. Some plants take advantage of this. And this here is a, a plant from South Africa, which is studied by people in our lab. It's called Gorteria diffusa, the beetle daisy. And believe it or not, this plant is engaging in sexual deception. Um, this plant grows in South Africa, by the way. So lots of members of our lab get to go to South Africa for their field work, and they get to spend several uh, several weeks out camping in Namaqua land and avoiding snakes and scorpions and studying these wonderful little flowers. I'll talk more about my fieldwork a little bit later. Um, so, sexual deception here. This is, um, uh, well, we've got several different petals. Most of them are orange, but this one here has a little spot on it. And it's a black spot. It's got a little uh, white dot in the centre. Some of the ones, uh, some... Other varieties of this daisy have two little white spots. There's also little ruffles on the, uh, on the edge of the spot. And to a male fly from relatively close up, this looks remarkably like a female fly because it's got, this is her thorax. Her abdomen's sort of down here, but you can't really see that. And the little spot is the sun reflecting off her shiny carapace. So the male will come in and think, oh, female fly, I shall mate with that. And it comes down here and tries to mate with the flower. And in doing so, some pollen from here is brushed off onto his head. And after a while, he gets a bit frustrated, and then he leaves. Uh, the, I don't think these plants even make a reward for him, so his reward is general frustration. <laughs> um, then, as he's flying around, he <laughs> then they're not terribly bright, so <laughs> the next flower he comes, oh, look, it's a female, a female fly again. I shall go and mate with that. And in that way, the, uh, the male bee has gone from, oh, it was the bee fly, sorry, so it's male fly, has gone from one plant to another and transferred the pollen. So this is how it affects its pollination, without making a reward. Another one you might have seen is the bee orchid, Ophrys. Most in this genus are deceptive. And again, there is no reward here. Um, so this looks a bit like a bumblebee. You've got your thorax here, the head would be up here, there's some wings, they're pink. Never mind, bees aren't terribly good at seeing red, so it'll look achromatic, sort of. Um, but it's not just, look, um, this smells like a female bee to a male bee. So um, he, he not only thinks from, from looking at it it's a female bee, but also by smelling it. And then when he gets there and he grips it and tries to mate with it, it also feels like a female bee because there's little hairs on it where the female bees have hairs. Um, so he, he is really very convinced that this is going to be a female bee and he's going to mate with it. But again, there is no reward for him. He gets booked on the head and some, um, some pollen placed on his back and then leaves frustrated. Now, it's in the plant's interest to look as much like a female bee as possible because it wants the male bees to, um, uh, to visit it. But it's in the bee's interests to learn that this is not a bee. So there's this continual arms race between bee and plant, trying to, so where the plant is, is or where the bee is trying to, or the female bees are trying to evolve away from looking like plants, so you get more success in mating. And the plant's trying to track that. 
So there's this fabulous arms race between the two plants um, of looking like a bee um, and the bees evolving away from looking like a plant. There's also smell deception. Uh, this is possibly my favourite plant in the botanic garden. I love taking people who don't know what this plant is to there, uh, particularly when they're about eight years old, because you can say, this plant produces a fabulous smell. Go on, put your nose in, have a really good sniff. And they have a sniff, and they go, oh, that smells disgusting. I go, yes, that is the dog mess plant. <laughs> it's in the glass house. It's called Deherania smaragdina. Smaragdina is, um, uh, it translates as emerald. So it's an emerald flower. You can't really see them when you're looking um, at the tree, because the flowers are the same color as the leaves. Um, but they stink of dog mess. And flies like laying their eggs in dog mess because their caterpillars eat it. So these attract flies, which come along, have a bit of a wander, hope to lay an egg, can't leave. But they've blundered around and they've got some pollen. So then they can take that off to the next flower. These flowers are actually also really, really clever. They last for about a week. And the stamens here, this, is a, this has been open for about three days. When the, when the flower first opens, all of the stamens are right together at the centre. So the female part of the flower is not accessible. After about three days, the stamens open out, and the female parts, the stigma and the style and the ovary, is accessible. And that is how this particular plant has worked out to, um, to avoid self-pollination. The pollen is accessible first, and then a bit later on, the female parts are accessible. But they're not both accessible at the same time. So that's how it avoids the self-pollination issue. And of course, the other way of attracting, be uh, attracting bees which can't really see is to make a really big, bright display. Now, originally, um, this slide had or just a really big, bright flower at the top of it. And I was going through this with my boss um, a, a few weeks ago, and she said, well, that, that, that's, that's not really a flower, though. And I said, yes, that, that's true, but do I really need to tell people that? Can I, can I get away? And she said, no, no, you really should. So this is possibly the most interesting fact which will come away from this evening. Uh, it's downhill from here on. I'm sorry about that. Um, this, is, this is not a flower. Um, in fact, it's loads and loads of flowers all crammed together in one. It's called a capitulum, a compound, uh, a compound flower, a flower head. So round the edge, you've got loads of these. Each one of these is a flower, and the petals have all fused together to make what looks like one petal, but it's actually several petals fused together. And in the centre, you've got lots of these little flowers, where again, all of the petals are fused together into a tube. You can see the separate... I think they've got five petals separate there. And in the middle, you've got a stigma and a style. And down here, the ovary, which has developed into a sunflower seed. So you've got several thousand of these flowers in the middle here, and a few hundred of these asymmetrical, what look like a single petal, but they're actually several of them fused together around the outside. And that is how all of the daisy family work to make really, really big, bright displays. It's not that they've got one massive flower, so they've got lots of flowers which are clubbing together. Downhill from here. So, making colours. When you've, when you've got plants uh, which are making colours to look at, you're, the flowers are there to make contrast visually with the background. So think back to that Deherania smaragdina where it was green. It needed another way of getting the pollinators to it. Um, but flowers like this are there to make contrast with the background. And don't forget that we bred many of these for our own use. So quite a lot of these aren't what they were naturally a few hundred years ago. It's not just um, normal the colours that we can see as well. Um, it's also ultraviolet. So this is a dandelion, another, um, another member of the daisy family. So this is actually several different flowers. You've got the ray flowers around the outside and the disc flowers in the middle. And this one looks yellow to us because the way that colour works is you shine all the different um, colours of the spectrum off on it. And that one is reflecting yellow and we can detect that. That's what we see. But if we look at it with an ultraviolet camera, which I was terribly excited to find one, um, you can see you've got this darkening in the centre of it. And bees can detect ultraviolet light. So in the same way that we can detect red uh, or yellow, and round the outside there is an absence of yellow, so that's why we don't see it there. 
in the middle there is an absence of UV light being reflected, so bees can see that. Now, sadly you won't see this if you get an ultraviolet torch and shine it on a, uh, on a dandelion. That's fluorescence, that's something different. Uh, you actually need to have a special UV camera uh, to look at the UV reflectance. Um, it's really, really cool to start going around and seeing which flowers are reflective and which aren't. Uh, Mum, my father is asleep, could you poke him? <laughs> It's all right, he's going to stay awake now. Uh, although I think I'm not going to get bought a pint afterwards. Okay, now blue is a really, really good, blue is a really good colour for bees to make, sorry, for bees to see. But true blue, not purple, is really, really, really hard to make. There are very, very few truly blue flowers. This is one of them. It's a fabulous flower called Mykonopsis. It's the Himalayan poppy. Um, it has really, really acidic conditions within the vacuoles of the cell. Uh, so that's actually really hard to make. But, so, but several plants have worked out how to make themselves look blue without being blue. And one of them is this poppy, it's, uh, sorry, poppy, tulip. It's called uh, Queen of the Night. And you can see it's got this sort of shimmer around the outside of it. And part of that looks blue with a following wind. Um, this plant is not blue at all. It's a dark purple. But the surface structures of it make it look blue. I want to have a bit of a look at that. This is iridescence. So if we zoom in on the, uh, on the surface, you see we've got these striations down it, these stripes. And above it, this is the diffraction pattern which you get from the light from when you, sh when you shine light on it. And if we zoom in even closer, you can see they're really, really regular ridges. This is very similar to a CD. So um, here are the ridges within a CD, and that's what makes it shimmer. Here's the diffraction pattern from the CD. And on the tulip, they're also really, really regular. But the slightly different pattern produces this diffraction pattern here, which has a blue halo around it. And indeed, bees see this as a blue halo, and they use that to, um, uh, as, as cues to be able to find the flower. How do we know that they can use those cues to find the flower? How do we test that in the lab? And so for the last um, bit of this lecture, I want to talk about some of the research that we've been doing in plant sciences, looking at this uh, and translating it into crop science as well. So um, we need to ask bees what they think of things like this. And we do this using differential conditioning. It's essentially rewarding or punishing a bee. So I do spend part of my day punishing bees. And I want to show you how we do it. <laughs> um, so for that, I need a volunteer. Um, you didn't think you were going to get, uh, get away with just sitting there for the entire evening. Who, who would like to volunteer? Excellent. Good. We should give them a round of applause. Hello. I won't, Hello. Shake, I won't shake your hand. The elbow bump. Elbow bump, yes. I cough into this one, so we're fine. <laughs> okay, good. Um, excellent. So what I'm going to do here, um, I... Um, sorry, what is your name? Finlay. Finley, excellent. Thank you very much indeed. I'm just going to go and find something for you. Bees. Uh, <laughs> this is where I release the bees. Oh. Oh. You shouldn't have. I, no, I really shouldn't have. You're quite right. You can put that on. Uh, it, it goes over your head. That's okay, it. yep. There we go, in there. Um, head should come out the top and you've got wings at the back. Yep. Fabulous. Yep. Um, if there's anybody who is here with Finley, now is the time to take a photograph. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Well done. Um, if you would like to stand over here. Fabulous. So you are a naive bee. Okay. Imagine that if you will. Yeah. And what I have here are some artificial flowers. Okay. And I want you to investigate them and find out which ones have rewards. They're, they're hidden under them because if I put them on top, you'll see it. Um, and I want you to think in the mind of a bee and try to maximize the sugar reward which you get to take home to your nest. So just have an investigate. Sad face. <laughs> oh, a sugar reward. Nope. Okay, so how are you? How are you doing your looking? <laughs> you well, just... so I figured that the bee probably isn't going to learn straight away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably going to go back to another one. Get yeah. it wrong. Oh, there's one. Okay. And, and what are you, it might pick up. And what are you using as the cue here? The colour. The colour. So what, what have you learnt? That the blue flowers have 
sweet sounds of them. Blue flowers have sweet. So continue to investigate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Congratulations. You may now return to your nest. You can take off your, okay. uh, your jumper. You don't have to. Um, I think my daughter might be sad if she doesn't get to us. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. That is essentially what we do with the bees. We have done differential conditioning. And in that case, I know that Finley was able to tell the difference between blue and red because he went to all of the blue ones and after, uh, and after the first couple of exploratory bags, to none of the red ones. That's exactly the same as we do with bees. Um, so congratulations, Finley. You are as clever as a bee. <laughs> or a bee is as clever as a bee. <laughs> we'll work that out later. So for testing pollinator responses, uh, we actually buy colonies of bumblebees. They arrive by post in a small buzzing cardboard box and terrify the receptionist. Um, and that's what we have here. Actually, they don't. Helen's lovely. Um, and we have a, a gated tube, which is a little plastic tube with slits in it, and we can put little gates in it so we, we, we can let one bee out at a time. And then we have our flight arena, which is a, a wooden box with a perspex lid. Here is a bumblebee. Uh, I mark them with a little disc because I cannot yet tell the difference between individual bumblebees. <laughs> and to do that, it, it looks a bit harsh, but actually it's okay. We, we have a a tube with a mesh top, and we push the bee up against it, and we stick a little sticker to her so we know which bee is which. Occasionally, we stick the bee's wings together, or, some, or the bee to the mesh, or something like that, and then, yeah, that's, that's sad. Uh, but most of the time, we actually get it right. And for test, testing pollinator responses, we train them on sugar solutions. So here's two bees. These ones are actually marked with nail polish. Uh, one's marked blue, and one's marked red and yellow. And that's another way of telling them apart. So we train our bees with sugar, just like we train Finley. Um, we can also punish them. I, in, in your case, I didn't give you a punishment. I thought that would possibly be a little bit harsh. Um, but in the case of a bee, what we often punish them with is quinine, which is the active ingredient of gin and tonic, or tonic. Um, the active ingredient is gin. It's in tonic. Um, and... Bees find the taste of quinine really horrible. If you feed them, they'll strop their tongue. They really, really don't like it. I tend not to use that, actually. I tend to just use water. Their punishment is no food, uh, because I really don't like the idea of punishing a bee. So if we have a look at the, uh, test, testing the pollinator responses, ignore the pink and yellow discs at the moment. Just focus on the two blue ones. This blue disc is iridescent. It's got a shimmer on it, and that's done by using a cast of a CD. And this one here is not iridescent. That one's got sugar on it. That one hasn't. And this is just a small subsection of the whole experiment. So we've got uh, something like, I think, 10 or 15 different iridescent disks and 10 or 15 different non-iridescent disks. And on each iridescent disk, we've got a small mouthful of sugar. So the bee has to fly to several different iridescent disks in one feeding bout before she gets full. And... Here we have a graph. We've got the number of bee choices. So she makes about 10 or 15 per feeding bout. So this is over the course of several different feeding bouts, like about eight different feeding bouts. And here we have the percentage of correct choices. And on the first bout, it's about 50-50. She's investigating. She's having a bit of a look. By the second bout, it's gone up. And by the, third, by the, uh, yeah, by the fifth, we're pretty high. And then seventh, eighth bouts, we're nearly up to 100%. So she has learned that the iridescent disks contain sugar. And from that, we can infer that she can actually tell the difference. We can't tell whether, she, whether they can use the iridescent disks yet, whether, whether that helps them find flowers. We've just shown that they can see the difference. So how then do we find out whether they can use it? And that's with this really clever setup where we've got three disks in a triangle. And the bee comes out and she lands on one of them doesn't really matter which one. And when she's finished feeding, she'll fly to one of the other two. And because they're in a triangle, they're always the same distance away from each other. And we can time how long it takes for her from her leaving this one to landing on the next one. And while she's feeding on there, we can top up this one. And then when she leaves this one, she can fly to another one. And we can time that difference. So let's say we do that with normal disks which aren't iridescent. And then with a different bee, we do that with some iridescent disks. And we do that with several different bees. 
uh, for a number of different feeding bouts, and we can time all of it. So we do it for several bouts, several bees, several colonies. And if we have a look at the iridescence figures, it's quite interesting. It turns out that a bee takes about four seconds to go between the first disc and the second disc, and about five seconds to go between the second disc and the third disc, when those discs are just red, um, uh, red plastic discs. No iridescence at all. So it takes about that long. If we add the film, which looks like a CD shimmer on top of it, uh, then that goes down. It takes about three seconds. So this is showing us that the iridescence on those discs is helping the bee find the flowers quicker. It's helping with the searchability. But that's just with the iridescence from a CD. If we then take our tulip and make a cast of that and make red discs which have the same surface as a tulip, then it's even better. We get down to about two seconds. So the flowers are, are more efficiently iridescent than a, than a CD is. The flowers have worked out how to fine-tune that iridescence to make it even better for the bees to find them. This iridescence, this blue halo, didn't just happen once. It's happened all over the, um, uh, the, the, um, uh, the plant tree of life. And I'm sure if we looked in more species, we would find, uh, find it in more of them as well. It's just it, it's quite time-consuming to test. So in this last bit, I want to talk about why we need pollinators. We need pollinators for our food. 35% of global food production from, by volume comes from crops which depend on animal pollination to some extent. And about 75% of the food that we eat is dependent on pollinators, again, to some extent. So you get 40 to 90% yield loss in apples and raspberries without pollinators. Kiwi fruit, if we don't have pollinators, you're basically stuffed for kiwi fruit. Beans, you're probably all right. Um, also, coffee and chocolate really depend on pollinators there. But wild pollinators are in decline, generally. This is a really, really complex issue. To be able to prove this properly, you need really good long-term studies over, um, uh, over several decades. And that needs them to have been set up about 50 years ago. They weren't really set up. But there are several studies which show a general long-term pollinator decline. So those two don't really go together. We, we need food. We rely on pollinators for lots of our food. There aren't so many pollinators around. What can we do about that? And this is where zoology comes in. It's, you can think, uh, and, and ecology as well, you're looking at increasing flower-rich habitats, trying to make more insects. And you can do ecological research to target the flower provision for particular pollinators. So if you know butterflies like a particular type of flower, you can plant more of those. <coughs> and you can also have a look in, as, at research into how crop flowers benefit or hinder pollinator communities. So what crops you need to be growing to help there. That's all somebody else's department. I'm looking at plants. So assuming we've got the same number of bees, how can we improve plants? Well, how can we make them more findable, which is what we're talking about with the iridescence, and also more rewarding? Um, I'll talk a bit more about that. So when we're talking about improving plants, what can we do to make those flowers more findable? And I spend, uh, I was saying earlier, um, several people go off and look at beetle daisies in South Africa. I look at strawberries. Um, strawberries, everyone likes a strawberry, which it, most people like a strawberry, which is good. And it's also quite easy to explain. You can grow them really easily here in the Botanic Garden. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at the variation in flower size and shape, which exists in current cultivars of strawberry, which are already grown. And then I'm going to take those back to the lab and ask the bees questions about whether you like bigger flowers or smaller flowers, wiggly flowers or not wiggly flowers. But I'm basing those questions about, around the actual observed variation which I see in strawberries. And it's literal field work. <laughs> um, up in Kings Lynn, there was a strawberry field with 120,000 strawberry plants in it. And the farmer said I could have as many of those as I want because he grows strawberry plants to sell. He doesn't grow strawberries. He doesn't want the fruit. So he employs a team of Lithuanians to go around the field and pick off the flowers. Um, so I was being chased by them, basically. I, I was trying to do my flower experiments while they were coming up behind me and, and picking all of the flowers off. It doesn't always um, uh, <laughs> look like that. This, I, I drove an hour and three quarters to get there. It rained. I came home again because you can't measure the amount of nectar they produce in the rain. Um, 
The other angle um, is also the reward that's offered, the volume, the concentration of the nectar that's produced, the sugar concentration, the pollen amount, the pollen viability. Uh, and this is all about providing the reward back to the honeybees, or to the bees, sorry, and the other insects to better support the populations uh, of them there. Um, oh, so something similar to the work I'm doing in strawberries has already been done in um, in field beans, so that's what this uh, that's what this is here. It's, a, it's remarkably like your runner bean, except it, it's broad beans basically. Um, and somebody else who has worked in our lab before, Emily Bales, did a lot of work characterising the nectar and pollen of different varieties of field bean. And I would have thought from the start that you wouldn't get that much variation between the different varieties, but that's not what she found. So she tested, I think this is 25 different varieties of bean. Ignore the colours for the moment, that was for a different research paper. And this ranges from 10 microliters of nectar, which is a sizable droplet, down to almost none. And this is all the same species. They can all interbreed with each other. Um, it's just that for some reason, as we have been selecting different varieties for, um, uh, for the different uh, seed traits that they have, we have somehow inadvertently selected for different amounts of nectar. There's also variation in nectar concentration. Um, so some of them have nectar which is about 55%, and it goes down to about 15%. And there's no correlation between the concentration and the amount. So it's not that th there's a finite amount of sugar which a bean plant can put in. Um, and you either make loads of not very concentrated nectar or a tiny bit of concentrated nectar. There's this huge variation all the way through. And this is great because it means that we can breed for both of them independently. So if we wanted to, we could breed for plants which produced lots of nectar and very sugary nectar. Now, it's not just as simple as make more sugary a nectar. Um, you may, um, if we have more nectar, then bees actually take longer per plant. We don't want that. We want bees to go from flower to flower as fast as possible and pollinate it. Um, so there is a balance there to be, um, to be struck between providing a good enough reward that they're interested and they can support their colony, uh, but also enough to keep them, keep them interested in moving on. Sugarier is also not just more sugar equals better. And you may have seen some stuff in the news um, a couple of months ago about bumblebee vomiting. Um, this, for some reason, um, took the hearts of people. I think, uh, I think it was all around Brexit time. And um, bumblebees are cute and vomiting is funny. So um, my research, which was just a side project before I started my PhD, is a bit of fun playing with bees. Um, it, it got written about in the New York Times. And there are many professors in the Department of Plant Sciences whose research has never been written about in the New York Times. So I was terribly excited by that. I've got a little video to show you about the experiment that we did there. Hopefully this will play. No, I don't, I don't, I don't need another volunteer. I'm going to skip that. There we go. I did have music for this one, but um, I was told I wasn't allowed because of copyright. So the bee comes out. The scales let us work that work out the weight of the bee. So we have sugar solution in here, and the bee flies on, and then we can see how much the scales have gone up, and we know how much the bee weighs. And then she has a little drink. Bees are really cute. And then when she flies away, we can work out how much she drank by how much the scales go down. So we know the difference between what it was before and what it was afterwards. She then returns to the nest. Up our little gated tube. <laughs> Shot on iPhone. Um, the bees are calmer if we view them under red light. They can't really see red terribly well, um, so it makes them an awful lot calmer than, uh, than white light. And in she comes. That's her there. Keep an eye on her. She goes off the bottom of the screen, but um, she'll come back again. So there we go. She's there, she's there, she's there. Having a wander round. There she is. And then we time how long it takes her to squeeze the sugar into the pot. Squeeze, 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 and then she's done. And then she heads out for some more food. So I watched that for about two months, <laughs> uh, which was fabulous. I love the bees. They're, they're, it's impossible to be angry when you're around the bees. Um, they're, they're so cute. 
Um, I'm going to skip over the volunteer um, simply because, simply for time reasons. Um, this is taking, uh, I, I've taken more time than I had, uh, had hoped to talk about this. Um, what I am skipping over is somebody pretending to be a vomiting bee. So <laughs> to be honest, you've probably got off lightly there. Um, so here is a little graph just to explain that bit, the, the, the bee vomiting result a little better because all of the, all of the newspapers, they just said bees vomit, haha, isn't that funny? Scientists are doing vomiting research and then moved on. So here we have the rate of energy return to the nest versus the nectar sugar concentration. Nectar viscosity is not linear. That means it doesn't evenly get thicker as we, uh, as we increase the concentration. It's actually exponential. So if we had viscosity, it would go roughly the same, and then it would suddenly get very, very much more viscous after about 50%. So what this graph is showing is the rate of energy return is basically linear all the way up to, uh, to about here, and then it starts to tail off. And the reason it's linear is because there is no, um, there's no effect of viscosity on drinking rate up to about here. The more, a bee can, or the more sugar a bee can get in, the more she can return to her nest. And that peaks at about 68%, um, assuming a foraging time of 100 seconds. If, if the different foraging times have uh, different rates of energy return. But for this one, it's peaking about 68%. But vomiting up sticky nectar is disproportionately more difficult than drinking it. And so... At some point, there's going to be that antagonism between vomiting and drinking. And we can show that on here. When we plug all of that into our model, it takes it down by about 3%. So the rate of energy return to the nest. If, she, if she's taking on anything more than 65% nectar, then it becomes so much harder to vomit it out that actually she should have just gone for a slightly easier nectar, and it'll be a lot faster, and then she can head back out for the next drink. Uh, so that was what that research showed. And everybody's saying, oh, so bees prefer lower, lower sugar nectar. No, that's not the case. They don't necessarily prefer it. What we've shown is if, if we're wanting to produce crops which have the optimal concentration sugar for bumblebees and they're going 100 seconds on their foraging trip, then you probably want, uh, want to look at about 65%. So it, the actual answers that we're coming out with are really, really, really specific um, but hopefully we can extrapolate some of those um, into producing better crops uh, for us. So overall, with the sort of research we're doing, we're trying to produce more food for us and more food for them. We're trying to make it so that we can use the pollinators better um, to produce more crops for us uh, to feed the rising global population. But we're also trying to produce... Uh, crops which are better for the uh, for the bees and the other insects which visit them, supporting them in terms of pollen and nectar. And we may be able to help local populations increase that way if we have a longer flowering time to support the forage all the way throughout the year. So it's traditional with a scientific talk to finish off with acknowledgements, and I'm a stickler for tradition. Um, there are many different people for, uh, who have been really, really helpful over my PhD. My supervisor, Beverly Glover, who runs the Botanic Garden. There are various different people within our lab who have um, provided some of the research which I have shown you tonight, and also just talked uh, bee stuff through. Um, I've hopefully credited all of the pictures. They're all public domain, because um, I don't like stealing things. And uh, finally, I want to talk a bit about funding. I'm funded by BBSRC, which is part of... Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a UK research council. And we get our money not, uh, from various different sources, but mostly from the, uh, from the taxpayers. So it's the reason why I don't charge for going out and giving talks to beekeepers associations or science festivals or things like that, because I've already been paid once by the people who I'm going to be going and talking to. I love what I do, as you can probably have uh, probably tell. Um, and at this sort of thing, I get the chance to say thank you very much indeed for funding me, for actually letting me do all of this research. It is absolutely fabulous. So thank you very much indeed for listening. Um, if we do have uh, questions, then there may be a little bit of time. But thank you very much indeed. If anyone does have any questions, that you're very welcome to run off to the pub. That's fine. Yes, I presume that uh, your research also helps to, uh, to to focus in a different way on people who are actually trying to produce honey in pots. 
because you said that you look at the amount of sugar in the honey and the amount of honey that's produced, but it gives you a slightly different result, a slightly different answer, a slightly different benefit. So, so looking at which plants should be planted if, if beekeepers want to produce honey? Cool. Yeah. Yes, and um, and we. Yeah, we, we could be improving crops so that um, so that beekeepers are able to produce more honey. I'm a beekeeper myself. Um, I have a few hives. The beekeeping has become very very fashionable. It's it's a fun thing to do. It produces honey. It's it's, it's nice and enjoyable. The trouble with, the trouble is that there, are, particularly in cities, there are so many. Um, there are becoming so many beehives from beekeepers that they're taking forage away from the wild bees. So there are several different sort of, let's rewild our farm. We've got a couple of beehives on the side. Isn't that beautiful? Well, you, you just planted a load of flower-rich meadow, and then you put in a load of insects, which are going to take away all of the forage for the wild bees, which you're hoping to encourage. So there is this real dichotomy between shipwork, beekeeping is fun, and, and people like it, and we can go and talk about honeybees and, um, and all of that sort of stuff as beekeepers with trying to help the wild bee populations because there are seven species of honeybee and there are 20,000 species of wild bee um, around the world. So we need to be helping all of those as well. It's a, it's a real challenge there. I want to ask this now, but I don't really understand the difference between keeping honeybees and having wild bees. Okay, so they're completely different species. Yeah. A honeybee is a farmed animal. Um, it is, a, it is an animal which you, which you have to produce a crop to sell. Wild bees are bees, they, they're solitary bees, they live in the ground. Or you can have fungal bees which live in little nests in the ground or in holes in trees or things like that. Um, and different plants are pollinated by different species. And also there's all of this ecological diversity. So different things feed on different types of bee nests. Different mites, different bees feed on other types of things. So it's, it's all about preserving species diversity as well. Any more, or would anybody, whatever, I'd just like to go to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Um, so, how can you, has there been any progress yet in terms of actually making these modifications to plants, or is this still kind of. Very little. Um, so, as far as I know, this sort of work has been done in sunflower, oilseed rape, beans, and strawberry is the fourth. Um, we just didn't need to before. We have never needed to think about breed, uh, growing plants which are better for pollinators, um, in terms of oh, which make better use of pollinators. Um, but with an extra three and a half billion people by 2050, I think somebody said we're going to need approximately the equivalent of the same amount of farmland that we're already using again. We don't have that. So we're going to have to start being clever. And various different people are working on increasing yield this is another angle to it. So hopefully this will feed into stuff. And I've got a couple of contacts with strawberry breeders. Um, one thing I really hope, because I need to translate this into benefits for farmers. And if we can, if we can say that particular um, cultivars of strawberry are better for bees, slap that on a label on your punnet of, um, bees, uh, punnet of strawberries in the supermarket, that'll make the farmer an extra 10p per punnet. So there is their, um, they can see an instant benefit from that, and then we can hopefully get our research in by stealth as well. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Quick follow-on. Yeah, sure. Yeah, is, is that something that look, you're looking into in terms of if there are certain plants that are better being distributing that to the public, basically? So there's the bee mix of seeds, I think, that we done. Is that something that you're looking at in the future? So I'm, I'm only focusing on crops. Um, <sighs> Planting for pollinators is fascinating. There's all sorts of research. So you get the little labels which say perfect for pollinators or things like that. Quite often they're grown with all sorts of pesticides. So actually you plant them and then the bees drink the nectar and there's pesticides in that. So there's, there's all sorts of horrible things with that. The, the seed mixes which you're talking about, um, there are good ones and bad ones. Good ones tend to be where you have a nice big mix of different flower shapes and flower types, and you can there's stuff for butterflies and bees, long-tongued bees and short-tongued bees and flies and all sorts of different things all over a hugely long period. What they what you often find is that they are they're wildflower mixes which look pretty, and they're not always scientifically informed. The one at the botanic garden 
is scientifically informed. They looked at how much nectar is produced. They looked at the length of time it's produced. They looked at what it feeds. Um, that one is quite a good one. Planting wildflower meadows is difficult. You need to plough the soil. You can't just chuck it on a lawn and flowers come up. Um, you can do that with, with annual mixes, which look pretty. So it's easy to make something which isn't necessarily good. It's quite difficult to make something, uh, to, to make a nice annual meadow which, which works. Sorry, I've sort of rambled around the point there, but um, I think that it addresses at least part of the question a bit. <laughs> Difficult question. Uh, if you say that honeybees aren't particularly good for the ecosystem, why do you keep honeybees? Yeah, fair point. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm looking to get a hive. Yeah. Bees. It's a very interesting. I never realised that there was some conflict between wild bees and. I, I think it's okay up to a point. So I keep a couple of hives. Um, I have kept more in the past. Since I've been doing this research, I've thought, well, hang on, actually, I probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, what I don't like is where you have, like I was saying, sort of a wildflower meadow, which somebody has spent ages putting in. They put seven beehives around it. it you get an awful lot of um, uh, forage which could be taken away from it there. So it's, it's a bit like using a car or something like that. So sometimes you have to. Um, you wouldn't necessarily use a car for literally everything or leave the engine running for the entire day. In a similar way, I enjoy beekeeping. I like honey. I like making mead. So, um, yeah. I hope that's okay. I feel slightly guilty now. <laughs> well, I'm feeling guilty. Oh, that's, that's good. Okay. I, I, I feel in good company. We'll have one more question and then I need to go to the pub. At the beginning, you mentioned a number of different pollinators as well as insects. Yeah. Do we need, presumably, to increase the efficiency of many of the others as well, or it's not so relevant? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So we use bumblebees in the lab because we can buy them in a small buzzing cardboard box, and they're really nice and easy to work with. Um, we do need to um, increase the searchability and, and, and make things more efficient for all of the different types of pollinators. Research shows that what we learn in bumblebees, we can extrapolate to other different, um, to other different species. So it's a useful model organism. In the same way with Arabidopsis that I was talking about earlier is the plant scientist's workhorse. We can extrapolate from that to other plants. Um, so yeah, we have, we have to pick something. <laughs> okay. I think I'll leave it there if that's all right. Um, if you do have any more questions, um, I'm on Twitter for people who are on Twitter, and we have Cambridge Bee Lab on Instagram. Um, you can also find me. If you search for Hamish Bees Cambridge, you'll probably find me somewhere. Um, so yes, thank you very much indeed for coming. Um, thank you.